Hi, my name is Casey Converse. The Old Testament reading is found in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Mark. The New Testament reading is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 6 through 10 and 12. What we say is wisdom to people who are mature. It isn't wisdom that comes from the present day or from today's leaders who are being reduced to nothing. We talk about God's wisdom, which has been hidden as a secret. God determined this wisdom in advance, before time began, for our glory. It is a wisdom that none of the present-day rulers have understood, because if they did understand, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. But this is precisely what is written, God has prepared things for those who love him, that no eye has seen, or ear has heard, or that haven't crossed the mind of any human being. God has revealed these things to us through the Spirit. The Spirit searches everything, including the depths of God. We haven't, received, we haven't received the world's spirit, but God's spirit, so that we can know the things given to us by God. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Amy. Please stand for the gospel reading found in John fourteen fifteen through 17. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells in you and will be with you. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. So, Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for your spirit at work in us. And as we hear your word today, we pray that you would be the one to open up our eyes that we would see Jesus and open up our ears that we'd hear your word and open up our hearts that we would be more than informed or challenged, but we would be changed, we'd be transformed into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name and everybody said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, (laughs) before we get going today, I just wanted to introduce to you so that you can welcome them officially. You remember a couple months ago, we told you that we were adding to our team, and it was a dear friend of mine that that I've known since my college years, was in our wedding, uh, Holly and I's wedding, uh, 15 and a half years ago, and you heard from him in October, you heard from him in November, and they have made the move from Tulsa. They are here to join our team. Please welcome Jason and Sarah Jackson over here.
Jason is going to be one of our pastors here that will lead and teach and preach and also uh, help us pay attention to spiritual formation, marriage and family, and a whole bunch of other things on his job description as well. But we're thrilled that they're here uh, this morning. We're in week two of a series on the Holy Spirit, and we said last week that really the goal is to kind of look with fresh eyes on the Scriptures uh, and even what the church has said about the Spirit uh, throughout the centuries. For some of you, when you hear uh, the, 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 the phrase, you know, the Holy Spirit, or you hear that we're going to do a series on the Holy Spirit, uh, maybe for some of you, you think immediately about that passage in the Old Testament of the still, small voice, and you're like, yes, this is the Spirit, that quiet, hidden work in me, and it's all about fruit and character and long faithfulness. And others of you, you hear this and you think, yes, it's all about that scene in the book of Acts where the room shakes and there's fire and there's other tongues and you're like, woohoo! And what we're trying to reconcile in this series is that both of these things are in the scriptures and more. And so what, we're, what we want to embrace is the, the living and active, dynamic, experienced reality of the Spirit of God at work in our hearts and in our lives. Last week we began with the phrase that the creed says about the Spirit, that these, this council of early Christian leaders got together and said, it's, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. And we talked about what that means. And today we're going to look at what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit. And he's in, in a, a passage here toward the end of John's Gospel, which are these, um, th- these, these conversations that Jesus is having before the cross, before he goes to the cross with his disciples. And one of the reasons we're starting there is because Jesus says something in the middle of this uh, discussion, this conversation with his disciples, that I think we struggle to believe. He said, it is better for you that I go. Now I would wager if I asked each of you today, would you rather have Jesus in the flesh or the Holy Spirit? You'd say Jesus in the flesh. At least a significant percent, you may not want to admit it. I'm looking at your faces like, mm-mm, but I know, because I might say it. Are you kidding me? Jesus in the flesh, like right next to me every day, you got it, of course. Then he can totally be my co-pilot in the car. He can totally take the wheel. <laughs> and we struggle to believe that Jesus himself told his disciples, it's better for you to go, for if I go, the Father will send the Holy Spirit. So we're looking at these passages this morning to say, what did Jesus say about the Holy Spirit? If you've got your Bibles, John 14 is where we'll begin. John 14, verse 16. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I will ask the Father and he will send another companion who will be with you forever. This companion is the spirit of truth whom the world can't receive because it neither sees him nor recognizes him, but you know him because he lives with you and will be with you. There's several things to note about this passage. The first is that Jesus says another, another. In other words, I have been this for you, but I'm sending you another. In other words, everything that Jesus is, in his essence, the Spirit is as well. This is why the early Christians said, we've got to wrestle with this and we've got to say, we can't, whatever we say about the Holy Spirit, we can't make him a diminished version of God. We can't make him kind of a nebulous, sort of step down, maybe intro level God. 
We have to say, we have to take seriously that Jesus says another companion. Everything that he has been and is, the Spirit is. And secondly, this word companion. In, in the Greek, it's this word that maybe you, you've heard it, you know, maybe you've seen it on a Christian bu- bumper sticker or, or refrigerator magnet, um, or it's been, it was the name of your youth group maybe, you know, back in the day because Christians love using Greek names for things. But it's this word paraclete. Now, in Greek, in some of the texts outside of the New Testament, this was sometimes used of a person who went with someone to court, who accompanied with them. It's not quite a technical term, but it's someone who would accompany you to court, an advocate. In fact, it's meant, there's a lot of situations where paraclete is translated as advocate. In fact, John, 1 John, it speaks of Jesus as the paraclete, as the advocate before the Father. So think about this. What Jesus is before the Father in heaven, the Holy Spirit is from the Father for us. What Jesus is before the Father, the Spirit is from the Father with us. Another advocate, another paraclete, the one who comes alongside. The, the roots of the world word are really the one who's called to come alongside, who travels along with us. That's why this translation calls it companion, the one who comes alongside. Now, I like I like that word, companion, because it underscores something we talked about last week, where we said, look, no matter what your experience or perception is of the Holy Spirit, we tend to make a couple of errors that either way make us leave the Spirit in the past. So you might be a person that says, well, isn't that great? The Spirit did all of those things way back when in the book of Acts, and he's sort of in the past. He was someone else's companion, but not yours. Or maybe you, you are the person that had these uh, dramatic experiences with the Spirit, and you're like, oh, the Holy Spirit got it. Back in 87, I was at that retreat, and I went to that revival meeting. I'll never forget when I met the Holy Spirit. That's great. But the Holy Spirit is not a destination that you visit. He's a companion for the journey. Not a destination that we visit, but a companion for the journey. So this language is not static. It's not one that we relegate in the past and say, well, I remember when, as if we say, yes, in the same way that we might speak of a city that we once went to. Yes, I've been to New York. Yes, I've seen Paris. Yes, I've, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. No. Jesus says, if I'm going to use language here about the Spirit, I want, I want you to think about the language of intimacy. Language of advocacy, language of a friend and companion that sticks closer than another, a friend who is with you always. This is why one of the, one of the things in my heart for this series is that there would be a fresh hunger and thirst in your heart. No matter what you've been through, no matter what your story has been with the Lord, whether you've been walking with the Lord for a long time or whether this is all new to you, But there would be this movement of hunger and thirst. And then, like we sang this morning, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. The psalmist says that. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And then hunger and thirst. And there's never a sense of like, you've been there, done that with God. Never a sense of, yeah, got it, check the box. But an active relationship with the companion. One of the ways that Jesus begins to show us that the Holy Spirit is an active companion, not sort of a silent passenger, you know, as if the Spirit were like the bobblehead doll on the dashboard, you know, just kind of there but quiet. 
But to say, no, the Spirit is going to play an active role is to look at three of the things Jesus says the Spirit will do. What is it that the Holy Spirit will do? What does Jesus talk about to his disciples to say to them, this is how you know the Spirit is with you. This is how you'll see him working among you. Let's look at three of them. The Holy Spirit is the companion who comes alongside us to, first of all, convict the world of sin. John 16, verse 7. I assure you that it is better that I go away, and if I don't go away, the companion won't come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will show the world it was wrong about sin. Wrong about righteousness, wrong about judgment. He will show the world it was wrong about sin because they don't believe in me. He will show the world it was wrong about righteousness because I'm going to the Father and you won't see me anymore. And he will show the world it was wrong about judgment because this world's ruler stands condemned. Now these are strong words. This is Jesus saying, look, I'm about to show you that the ruler of this world, the one that everybody else thinks is in charge, the ruler that rules by power and by violence and by force and by imposing the will to everybody's natural eyes, that is the world's ruler. And I'm about to show you by being crucified and raised up that that ruler is false. This is why... You know, I think it, it really makes no sense for Christians to do the things that we do. Because you think, well, don't you live in the real world? Say, yes, we do, but we believe there's something more real than that. We believe there's another king of the world that no one really sees. We believe that the ruler that you think is the ruler of this world is not actually the ruler of this world. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has convicted us of a, of a wrong way of seeing things. But what I love about this is Jesus is saying, look, it's the Holy Spirit who will convict the world of this stuff. It's the Spirit who will do it. This is especially powerful when you think about how the, how the church grew in the first 300 years. I'm reading a book right now by a, a, a professor of uh, the New Testament and of the early origins of Christianity. And um, he's talking about what was really remarkable about the first 300 years of Christianity. Because you might sit in college and listen to, to a secular prof sort of rattle off about all of the abuses of empire and how Christianity only spread because of Rome and all this stuff. But what they'll never tell you is the most remarkable spread of Christianity happened bef- when it was despised and scorned by the empire. When it made no sense for this fledgling little group, this little thing that began as a breakaway from Judaism and how they wrestled with their vision of Jesus and of God to the point that it distinguished themselves from Jews and from pagans and everybody else looked at them and thought, you're crazy. This doesn't make any sense. This flies in the face of all that is civilized and orderly. Around AD 40, there were, by good estimates, about a thousand Christians in the Roman world. By AD 100, there were 7,000 to 10,000 Kind of some historians' estimates. By AD 200, look at this leap now, there's 200,000 Christians. But by the time you get to AD 300, there are at least 5 million Christians. If you're a mathematic person, you know, and you like charts, and you tried to plot this out, as I did earlier this week, it would go like this. Vroom. That last 100 years just took off. Exponentially grew. 
It didn't even be, it didn't even become an officially allowed legalized religion until into the 300s. Doesn't become the official religion to the late 300s. In fact, Rome's response to Christianity was not what helped it spread, but rather was because of its spread. It's because it began to grow and grow and grow. Who did this? How is it possible for a church to spread the good news of Jesus when it doesn't have cultural power? Oh, it's because it has the Spirit's power. I want to say something to all of us who are, who are only used to living in a, in a society where Christians have influence. I think it's marvelous when when we see Christians in the media. I think it's marvelous when a newspaper does a story on a church. I think it's great when there's a movie in the movie theater that hints at the gospel. I, I think all of those things are wonderful when, when we get to have people serving in elected office that represent uh, things that help uh, uh, some of the things we believe in. I think all of that is marvelous. But can I tell you that there is no power that compares to the power of the Holy Spirit at work through the church. There's no power that compares to that. And so for all of our grabbing for cultural and social and political power, don't forget that the most powerful thing the church has is not its politics, is not its money, is not its leverage or its influence. It is the Holy Spirit. And it's easy for us to forget that. When the church has lost cultural or political power, it has an opportunity to recover its truest power. The Holy Spirit. It has the opportunity. I believe that we're living in a generation where we can say, okay, all right, all right, wait a minute. I'm so used to using the instruments of control and the instruments of influence that I am used to. I understand how those machines work and I understand how, and we grab for it and, and leverage for it and manipulate for it. And all along, I wonder if Jesus is saying, don't you know that a little group of 12 that then became 120, that then became 1,000, then became 5,000, and all of a sudden became 5 million in a few hundred years. It happened not because they had respect and influence. It happened because the Holy Spirit worked through the church. We've got to believe that again. I read a story this week of a little church in a small city in England that had started a program to help refugees that were being resettled in England. And they were very careful that with the program that they ran, they were very careful that that program itself was not preachy, that it wasn't you know, heavy-handed or anything like that. But it was also very obvious that the program was being run out of a church. And I read the story that said that a number of these Muslim refugees began having dreams and visions about Jesus. And not only dreams and visions about Jesus, but about specifically that church and then, so many of them began getting saved, that this is what one of the church members said, so many supernatural and mystic experiences seemed to be happening, it was wonderful to be part of it, it was all quite messy, which is English for, we had no clue what was going on. <laughs> we are not organized at all, you know. I love this, to the point where some of the people, that the Muslim refugees that had, that had seen these dreams and visions and converted and been baptized, then took part in the church's nativity play. So you had people actually from the Middle East. What a concept. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts the world of sin, amen? 
Secondly, Jesus said it's the Holy Spirit who is the companion who comes alongside us to guide the church into truth. John 14, verse 25. I have spoken these things to you while I am with you, but the companion, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I told you. Let's skip back to John 16, verse 13. However, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you in all truth. He won't speak on His own, but He will say whatever He hears and will proclaim to you what is to come. Now, by the way, this also happened for the disciples. That's how they went full of the Spirit. That's how they began to write these letters to these congregations that are now part of our Scriptures. It's also how for the couple centuries after that, when there were these different church councils, it was also how they wrestled and were guided into truth to say, let's formalize this. Let's set this up. This is truth. They were guided into it. But it's not just something that we look back and say, well, isn't it great that it was their experience? It also can be our experience. I remember in high school, I read a book by um, a a very well-known American pastor named A.W. Tozer. You may have I heard of him, you may have read it, uh, one of his books. The Pursuit of God, I think, was the one that I read back in high school. And, and Tozer, you know, grew up, he was born in 1897 in poverty, had to educate himself. And he believed, Tozer really believed that seeking God and seeking truth are overlapping pursuits. These are not contrary things. And so there's stories in there of him as a young man sometimes reading Shakespeare, hoping to gain insight on the human um, condition of the human psyche, which Shakespeare was very insightful into. And there's stories about Tozer then dropping to his knees and praying and saying, Lord, show me, give me understanding even as I'm reading this. And I remember reading about Tozer doing that as I was in high school thinking, this is what I want. I want to believe that the spirit and truth are meant to work together. That the spirit is our guide into truth rather than the opposite of learning. How many times have we heard about the Holy Spirit in a way that was, was anti-education? Right? How many times have you heard, oh, in the, in the book of Acts it says the disciples were unschooled men, but they had been with Jesus. Right, they were unschooled by Greek classical standards. But as good Jewish boys, they'd memorized the Torah. So when you've memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, then come talk to me about not being educated. What I mean is the Spirit is not the opposite of learning. In fact, the Spirit can guide your learning. I went to a Christian university where there was an unofficial slogan that said, here's where you can get your learning and keep your burning. I like that. I like that because I want both of those things. I want learning and I want the burning heart, right? The Spirit guides us into all truth. Why shouldn't we invite the Holy Spirit into every part of our study and of our learning? Why shouldn't we welcome him into the process? Because in the end, Jesus says the third thing that the Holy Spirit does is that he reveals Jesus. He is the companion who comes alongside us to do what? To reveal Jesus. John 15, verse 26. When the companion comes, whom I will send from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. 
I think there's a lot of chatter out there about churches where the Spirit is at work and someone says, well, look for that sign or look for this sign or look for this manifestation. I don't see any signs of the Spirit at work in that church. That must be dead. Or that must... And there's a lot of quick judgments being handed out about where the Spirit is or isn't working. And the greatest tragedy about all of that is that Jesus said, Jesus said, you know what? The greatest manifestation of the Spirit at work in a church is, is that Jesus is revealed and glorified. The greatest manifestation of the Spirit at work in a church is that Jesus is revealed and glorified. Now that may, not, may or may not include goosebumps. That may or may not include excitement and hoopla and, 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 and other sorts of... It, it may and it may not. But what we want to look for is, is Jesus the center here? Is Jesus the center here? Are we being turned over and over again back to Jesus? Or am I being turned over and over again back to me and how God is all for me? Ironically, some of the places where we think are the most charismatic are actually the ones where the bulk of the messaging is about how God is working for you. Your miracle, your due season, your answer, your year, your you-go-girl. And I think there's a tremendous irony to this. Because if we want to be a place where the Spirit is at work, we have to recognize that the thing the Spirit is going to do is He's, he's going to keep taking the spotlight away you, from you and shine it back on Jesus. He's going to say, yeah, this, this, your, your struggle is real, and God sees it. But look over here. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold Jesus. The greatest manifestation of the Holy Spirit at work at a church is that Jesus is revealed and glorified. Ten years ago in New Life, went through a major, unexpected, upheaval, transition. I was hungry to find ways to let the church be centered on Jesus. I was hungry to find a way for my own heart to be repeatedly led over and over again to Jesus. And a few years after that, we started the service on Sunday nights. <laughs> Sorry. First service, guys. <laughs> we started this service on Sunday nights, and... Um, I remember feeling a nervousness in my own heart about being a preacher each week, recognizing that I was going to stand up in front of people for 20, 30, maybe longer at first, 40 minutes, and to think, I don't want this focus, I don't want the impression to be, okay, this is about the person speaking. How, how do we avoid that? How has the church avoided this? And the more I discovered about how Christians have worshipped throughout the centuries, the more I understood why the communion table was the centerpiece of Christian worship. Not because it's some ritual, not because it's just some tradition we've got to keep going, don't end the streak of doing weekly communion, but because it's, it's not just a historic practice, it's a centering practice. It's the thing that we do as the people of God that reminds us, wait a minute, whatever is sung, whatever is said, in the end, the mystery of faith is that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. And so we come to the table as a way of saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, 
This is, always has been, and always will be about Jesus. And so we began doing weekly communion on those Sunday night services, and then it spilled over into New Life North, the, their Sunday morning services. And then when we started New Life Downtown, there was never a doubt that we were going to say, this is what we're going to do. Why? Be- because it's not the afterthought of the service, it's the climactic point of the service. So that whether the worship team is on or not by your estimation, and whether the preacher was on or not by my estimation, we're going to come to Jesus and receive again the body and the blood. See, this, it's worth saying that at the table, it's not just a past remembrance that occurs. And maybe this will help you because some of you think, well, uh, uh, what's the Holy Spirit doing? Just helping me remember? Partly. But we don't just remember the past event. We also anticipate the future feast. We also, it's the Spirit that quickens us as we come to communion and say, wait a minute, Lord, one day every tear will be wiped away. One day we're going to be seated around the banqueting feast with you. One day there will be what the book of Revelation calls the wedding supper. And the Spirit and the bride say, come. Right? But it's not just past remembrance and future anticipation. It's also a present encounter. A present encounter. This is why from very early on, Christians began to say, somehow, we don't know how. At different points, people tried to say how. (laughs) But the truest thing Christians have said is, somehow, there is Christ truly and really present here through the Spirit. Personally, I love how Calvin talked about it, faith in the heart of the worshiper, the spirit coming and meeting us here. But whatever, whatever language we use, the point remains. It's the spirit that makes this moment not just past remembrance and future anticipation, but present encounter. Present encounter. The Holy Spirit helps us to remember the death of Christ, to anticipate the return of Christ, and to encounter the risen Christ. That's why we come. So as we prepare our hearts for that today, and as the worship team gets ready, I want for us to invite the companion, the Holy Spirit, to do all those things that Jesus said he would do. Convict us of sin, guide us into truth, and reveal Jesus. In a way, that's what we do every week after the sermon, is to say, all right, Holy Spirit, would you convict me of sin again? Would you show me where I keep turning to my own strength? Would you convict me again? Would you guide me again into truth? And would you reveal Jesus again? So would you bow your heads this morning?